This morning we have Nate Sims with us again, and he is going to be bringing God's word to us. Nate, come on up. Okay. All right. All right. The handheld it is. Well, listen, there's no. I'm in that doghouse. I uh, <laughs> accidentally locked my wife's keys in the car. <clears throat> and uh, she's, you know, gets all, gets all the kids dressed up, ready to go, and then she can't get in. And then I'm venting at the table like, oh, I'm, so, I'm such an idiot. Then Rich hears me and goes, I will deliver the keys to your wife. And so that's where Rich is. That's why she's all by herself up here, right? So anyway, we're going to see how this goes this morning. Okay, so as you just heard and you've read text, okay, it's very long and very complex. Um, and, but I'm excited to get through it because it's very, very important. And so I'm also aware that as through the book of John, through the book of John, and so I know it's kind of fragmented, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to learn three things. We're going to learn that Jesus is controversial. The second thing we're going to learn is that Jesus is perplexing. And thirdly, Jesus is confident. All right, first, Jesus is controversial. Okay, so I have to admit, I was one of the people in the past couple of years, the submersible with five people that went into the ocean to go down to the Titanic. I don't know why they were down there wanting to look at it through a screen, right? And so uh, it was this, it was a, a mysterious, it was controversial because, uh, I'm being approached by a man. Okay, well, you know, how you doing? What did you, uh, you guys have for breakfast? Am I good? Oh, yes. Get rid of that mic. All right. Now I'm going to talk with my hands and annoy you. So, uh, thank you. Thank you. So, I, I did get sucked into that controversy of, like, the, the whole submarine thing, right? And, and, like, you know, it became international news. It was like, okay, it was dramatic. They lost communication. They're trying to figure things out. The stepson of one of the billionaires was going to a, you know, Blink-182 concert. And so, like, it was just very controversial. Everybody had their opinions and, and things like that. And let me tell you, my friends, Jesus is controversial. He draws attention. So John chapter 1, for example, it starts off, it says that Jesus is God. Jesus is creator God. Jesus created everything. John chapter 2, Jesus literally overturns tables, fastens whips, and chases the Jewish people out because they're treating the temple, a place of worship, as a marketplace. People are supposed to be able to go to the temple, and they're supposed to be able to find peace with God, worship him for who he is, and that made Jesus very upset, right? And, and a lot of people don't remember that part of Jesus, right? The Americans, just we just want to just snuggle up with Jesus and think that he just loves everything that we do, and 
But that, there you go. He's controversial. He goes in there and just overturns things, right? John chapter 3, he has an encounter with Nicodemus, someone who's significantly older, uh, really well-respected. He's a part of the Sanhedrin, and Jesus basically says, yeah, all these wonderful, beautiful things that you do in your life, all the studying that you have done means nothing. You need to start over. You need to be born again to have a relationship with God. Totally rocked his world. It's controversial. John chapter 4, the woman at the well, of course. Jesus goes out of his way to have a conversation with a woman in public, which Jewish men didn't do. That was against the custom and the culture. And so he's talking to her, and she's morally bankrupt. You know, she's got all kinds of relationships everywhere. She's racially different. Jewish people did not like Samaritans because they're half-breeds. And so Jesus is really going out of his way, and it's controversial. Even his disciples said, why are you talking to a woman? <laughs> John chapter 5, which is the text that we're coming from. So before, you know, we just read the passage. So before, what Jesus did was something that was extremely controversial, and that was that he healed a crippled man on a Sabbath. So he heals the man, he approaches him, heals him up. And he says, go pick up your mat and go home. And so that's what he does. And the Pharisees catch wind to this, and they basically start interrogating this guy. Okay, who healed you? What's going on? And the man actually rats Jesus out. Okay, so verse 15, 5 verse 15, where are we at here? It says, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, a couple things are actually happening. So Jesus does a miracle, so he is working. It was a work that Jesus did. And then he commands the crippled person to get up and walk. So now Jesus is telling another person to work on the Sabbath. And so that's a no-go for the Sabbath because they were very strict on the rules. And modern-day Jewish people, for example, sometimes don't even turn the lights on in their house on the Sabbath. They take it extremely seriously. And so what Jesus is doing, when, when he says, my father is working until now and I am working, well, what does that mean? Well, see, Jewish people understood God has to always work. Thanks, Rich. God always has to work. Because if, if God wasn't working, then the universe would fall apart. Okay? But we're human beings. So we need to rest, because that was the example that God set forth for us. We're not God, and so we need to rest. And so Jesus says, well, the Father's working until now, and I am working. And so what Jesus is doing is saying, I'm God. That's what he's saying. I don't need to rest. I am God. God doesn't rest, which is a good thing for us. That's a whole other application point. He sees you all day long and knows what's going on. Jesus is claiming deity right here, which is insane. It's rocking people's worlds. And, and, and so, like, you know, there's another point in John chapter 7 where Jesus is having an argument with the Pharisees, and he says, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses is not broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I, man, I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So what is he saying? 
Well, the law of Moses says on the eighth day, a male baby needs to be circumcised. So that means, like just a numbers game, you know, the eighth day for some babies would be on the Sabbath. And so the, the Pharisees are like, okay, well, what do we do here? If we circumcise, it's doing work. It's creating unrest for the baby because it's extremely painful. But, you know, so they wanted to obey the law of Moses, but they're working on the Sabbath at the same time. And Jesus goes, you're hypocrites. I made somebody well on the Sabbath. This person can now rest on the Sabbath, and you're calling me out on it. When you circumcise babies on the Sabbath and make them cry. It's just, a, it's just a very unique way that Jesus calls them out in their hypocrisy. It's pretty brilliant. So, uh, yeah, you don't mess with Jesus. But, so here's the thing. Jesus is absolutely controversial because of what he's saying. He's saying, I work on the Sabbath. I'm God. Very controversial. So here's the question I have for you. Should we, as Christians, be controversial? Should we be controversial people? And the answer is yes. But for the right reasons, right? Christians can do all kinds of weird things, be controversial for all kinds of reasons. People can be controversial for whatever motive of the heart gives them, right? People can just be controversial. Now, here's the thing about controversy. Controversy can only exist when cultural norms are established. And so if you rub against cultural norms, there's controversies. So, for example, we have macro culture, which is our country, America, and then within our macro culture, we have subcultures or microcultures, right? Like church, workplace, family environment. And so whenever you rub against any of those cultures, it creates conflict. So think about macro culture for a minute. What happened somewhat recently, right, is there was the Bud Light controversy. They hired on the gendered person to be, uh, you know, an image on the can. And because they made that decision... Now, all of a sudden, they faced almost $30 billion because of a protest. It was a controversy because it shows you that the human, are, the, the values are, are having a conflict, right? American values is you can express yourself, be whoever you want to, and everybody's going to celebrate you and love you. And the reality is there was a lot of pushback. There was a boycott. There's just controversy. That's all I'm saying is there's just simply a controversy. This happens in the church all the time. Well, I don't like the worship. I don't like those hymns. They're too slow for me. I like the modern day worship. Or I like the really fast beat drums and we need to get rid of those hymns and all those things, right? So in the church, people argue and create controversies all over the place, right? Pastor's not doing their job. Pastor's not doing what God's called them to. It's controversial. What about the house, the home, the home front? Let me tell you, in my own home culture, I grew up as a boy, right, and I'm living at the dinner table. I belch, and there's no problem. I grew up in that family environment. You burp, nobody cares. But I tell you what, if I bring my home culture to somebody, they might look at me like, what are you doing? Pastor John has me over, and I burp at his table. He might look at me like, what are you doing, right? It's gross, right? So the point is, culture will always have controversy because we're humans, and we always push the boundaries. My dear friends, I'm going to tell you this. If you are actively following Jesus Christ, you are going to offend every macro and micro culture. All that you will. And we're called to. If you're following Jesus, when he says, you know, pick up your cross and follow me, yeah, it's going to happen to every single environment that we, that we, we just need to be controversial. So think about 
Think about this. If we're going to be controversial, we have to know why we're doing it. Yeah, we just don't want to be randomly controversial. So what is the reason for us to be controversial? And really, I'm going to sum it all up in Jesus' life, and that means we need to be champions for life. Radical. Physical and spiritual. That's what we as Christians need to be controversial for. So for our macro culture, you know what we need to do? We need to protect life in the womb. We need to take care of those babies. But also, we need to give life to those who've actually gotten abortion, right? And so we, we don't want to condemn them and be like, oh, well, you're subhuman. No, we need to show grace and kindness to them. We need to show grace and kindness to the poor people of society. We need to show grace and kindness to those who are mentally challenged and can't defend themselves. We need to be kind to refugees. We need to be kind to human beings. We need to show love for other people. We need to be controversial for that. That's what we should be known for. What about the church, ladies? Said, hey, you guys were controversial many years ago. The UCC said, hey, we're going to stop preaching the gospel pretty much. We're going to run away from the, the scriptures. And you guys had to make a decision. You guys had to make a controversial call. No, you guys can go your separate way. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to center on giving life to Soderton by preaching the word, right? You had to be controversial. So you need to be controversial even in the church context. If you're, if you're serving Jesus, that's just what's going to happen. And even in the home front, right? People weren't really happy in my home and my family, like I, I have half, half my family is about non-believers, right? So they weren't exactly the happiest when I said I'm going into the ministry. They just didn't like that. And so, but it, it creates that conflict. It's controversial. So there's nothing that we can really do about it. If you're following Jesus, you're going to live a controversial life. You think Jesus intended to heal that, that man on purpose? On that particular day? I mean, what? He was crippled for 38 years. Jesus was in his 30s, his early 30s, 33 when he died-ish. That means that man was crippled his entire life. And Jesus, growing up as a boy, that guy was crippled. He was in the same spot his entire life. Jesus whacked a bee's nest, and he did it because he's saying, I am the God of the world, and I'm standing right before you. God is life. And that's why he's going to be controversial. He's going to show you who he is. So that's my first point. Jesus is controversial, and so should we be. Secondly, Jesus is perplexing. So if you were reading this passage, it's a little bit confusing. And it, it's intended to be that. Right? So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of reread this a little bit here. So... This is, what, uh, this is what Jesus says. So he's talking to the Pharisees, right? They're, they're really angry at him. And so Jesus kind of starts this monologue and starts talking to him. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. The son does likewise they're doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as, the, uh, just as they honor the Father. I'm going to go down to verse th uh, 30. He says, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the 
will of the one who sent me. Okay, this is all confusing stuff, and it's intended to be that way. Because we don't, two reasons why Jesus is perplexing right here. So, and Jesus is like, Jesus just said, I'm God. And just like Alice in the Wonderland, Jesus is like the white rabbit that goes down a rabbit hole and pulls them all down. And it's just a perplexing puzzle that he takes them right on this journey. And he, he does two things here. By language, he's telling them that he is God. So think about this for a second. Uh, he, he's telling people, I can do nothing on my own. Right? Uh, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. So what he's basically saying here, as he's talking about this relationship between his father and himself, is he uses the language interchangeably. I follow the, the father perfect. Whatever his will is, I'm doing it. In, in another place of scripture, he goes, um, uh, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one can go to the father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's John 14. I would never use that language with my dad. Oh, if you've seen my dad, you've seen me. That makes no sense. Or I would never say, um, Father, then 10 says, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. That makes no sense. We can't really connect with that because we can't be another human. <laughs> so what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I share the same essence as the Father. I am not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. But they're both God. But we serve one God. And not, not only that, but in chapters 14 through 17, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit comes into play in a radical way. Now it's Trinitarian. It's not just a binatarian relationship. It becomes a Trinitarian relationship. It's absolutely mind-boggling, and we have a hard time understanding it. But let me tell you this. When he says, if you have seen the Father, if you have seen, <laughs> you've seen me, right? In the Old Testament, nobody ever could ever claim that they've ever seen God. Nobody would ever make that claim, especially Moses, who was the best prophet. The reason why is because if you saw God, you would just die. And so for Jesus to make that claim... That if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What he's saying is, I'm right next. I am God in the flesh. You're not, you're not dead because I'm covered in the flesh. But I am God and I'm right here, right next to you. It's perplexing. So you're going to see that through Jesus' intimacy, right? He's obeying the Father absolutely perfectly. He's aligned with his will perfectly. We, it's perplexing. So through language and his intimate relationship with the Father, he's showing you that he is God. But also through his works. Okay? Definitely through his works. So let's take a look at this. John chapter... Uh, if we look at John chapter 10, it says this. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not good for a man, uh, it, uh, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. And so what did Jesus do in his ministry? What is the works of Jesus? Well, it's healing people. It's providing food, right? Jesus fed the 5,000. Jesus calmed the storm. Jesus preached repentance through himself. 
So Jesus' works is about mending the physical world and also spiritual connection to God. So Jesus' works is completely perfect. It's a complete and perfect reflection of the Father's will. So that means whatever Jesus is doing, whether it's withdrawing to pray for hours on end or just taking care of people, he's perfectly executing the Father's will. And it's beautiful. Like, it's incredible. It's all life-giving. And he does that through two things. In this passage, you're going to see that the Father says, oh, I'm going to entrust you, Jesus, to have life-giving power to whomever you will. When Elijah heals the widow's son, he performed a miracle, resurrection, right? But that wasn't Elijah's choice. That was God's choice. God's choice God is the only one who can resurrect people, and it's his choice. He gives all people life. That's not our decision. That's God's decision. So when the son is entrusted with life, as he heals and resurrects Lazarus coming up in a few chapters, it's a direct claim to his deity. Oh, and guess what? Not only does Jesus just resurrect and heal and do the works perfectly of the Father, he also gets the judgment. See, earlier in John, it says that Jesus, because in this passage it says, no, the world are condemned the world, right? A lot of people kind of get confused, because in this passage it says, no, the Father has given me the power to judge. So what's going on here? Well, when Jesus, his first coming to the, the world, he didn't come to judge the world. He came to live and perform the works of the Father. When he comes back in his second coming, oh, there's going to be a judgment day. And see, here's the thing, in Jewish in Jewish circles of thought, right, this is exactly what they think. At the very end of time, there's going to be a resurrection, and God's going to make all the physical things right. There's going to be this grand judgment time at the very end, right? And Jesus says, that's mine. It's crazy to think about. It's just, it's just so crazy that God would, um, <laughs> that Jesus would say, you know what? I, what he claimed. So here's the thing about Jesus. What he claims is such an endearment with the Father that these Jewish people are just freaking out. When he says, my Father, and he refers to God as his personal Father, the Jewish people, Jewish communities would never do that because there's this disconnect of relationship. And so Jesus is saying, I'm completely in line with the Father through intimacy and his, and his works and his resurrection and his judgment and everything like that. It is such a beautiful passage for us to look through because that's what we need here's the thing we can't pray perfectly to the father we can't perform perfect works we are messed up people in so many ways and directions we feel like what are we going to do why was jesus doing all these works it's because we couldn't do it we failed as human beings we cannot measure up to it and you know here's the interesting thing in John chapter 6, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he, who he has sent. If you want to do the work, if you want to have eternal life, you need to do the work of, of God, which is to believe. Why? Because you can't live the life. Why would Jesus come and die a horrible suffering death? For us why would he do that because we need a savior we need somebody to do it for us we can't perfectly live in alignment with the father and that's what god demands of us 
God demands that we live in perfect union with him, and we just can't. So the amazing thing is if you scroll down, in uh, verse 24, John 5, 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. What that means is everybody is dead. If you pass from death to life, that means you automatically start off dead, and you're automatically all judged before God. That is the human condition. You are dead, just like Ephesians chapter 2. You are dead in your sins. You cannot save yourself. Dead people don't save themselves because they're dead, right? So Jesus comes, and he does everything, all life, completely lives absolutely perfect as a human being. Humans could never do that. So when he dies on the cross and resurrects from the dead, what is the work of God that we believe and trust that Jesus did the works? And so here's the thing. Jesus, when he was dying on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? What is happening at this moment? He's hearing silence from the Father. When, he, when that happens, he is taking your judgment. It's your judgment day being poured out on Jesus Christ. God is judging himself on your account. And it wasn't fun. So if you are in Jesus Christ, if you simply believe that Jesus Christ died on the, on, on the cross, lived, resurrected from the dead, and you receive that gift that he has lived a life that you couldn't live, you will have eternal life, and he has taken that judgment that you deserve. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. That is the work of Jesus Christ. It's perplexing. It's all because he loves us. We are made in his image. He cares about us. He loves us. He cares about his creation. That was his mission. And it's absolutely perplexing. Now, because of who Jesus is, he's in a conversation with the Pharisees. Right? And he has opponents. He's, you know, there's arguments going on. And Jesus is extremely confident because of who he is. He knows who he's talking to. And he's talking to, right, the hypocritical Pharisees uh, that are casting judgment on him. And so, Jesus is confident because this is what he says. Um, he starts to bring in witnesses. So, he brings in three but really two witnesses into the conversation. So, towards the end of this passage, he's having a discussion with the Pharisees. And what, it, what is really happening is they're casting judgment on Jesus. But Jesus is so confident in who he is that he actually flips the tables and turns it on them. Because what does he say? He talks about these witnesses, right? Two to three witnesses. Now, according to Jewish, and I'll actually give you a quote here, but according to Jewish custom, if you're prosecuting somebody, you need two to three witnesses. You can't just prosecute somebody based off of your testimony because that would be unjust. You could just say whatever you wanted to, and, and you know, there would be no verification of what would actually happen. And so we read this in um, John 15. Uh, he says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. He also says um, in John 8, uh, 13 through 18, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, 
For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that a testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So in this passage, Jesus says, I'm a witness. I'm prosecuting you Pharisees. You're wrong. Oh, but it's not just me. It's actually the Father. The Father bears witness about me. Well, how does the Father do that? Well, it's through the works. We already talked about that. Jesus' miracles bear witness that the Father is completely unified with the Son, but also the very Scripture itself testifies about the Son because of prophecies. Scripture all points and is, is all leading to Jesus Christ. And even Moses, right? Moses is referenced. There's one greater than Moses who was considered to be the greatest. So there's one even greater that is coming after Moses. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's me. So the witnesses, Jesus is saying, I'm prosecuting you, Pharisees. You think you're prosecuting me? No, I'm prosecuting you. Me, the Father. And then he cites John the Baptist. Now this is really interesting because everybody loved John the Baptist. He did this great ministry of repentance He's teaching people. He's pointing uh, people to the Messiah. Everybody's getting really, really excited. Even the Pharisees are kind of into this, and they're, and they're, they're kind of like eavesdropping. They're, they're keeping their eye on things. But what's really interesting is John do, uh, Jesus doesn't really care too much about his testimony. What, what does he say? He says this. Um, where is it? He says... Uh, where is it? It's in my notes. Right here. Verse 41. I do not receive glory from people. And so what Jesus is basically saying is, I don't need the witness. I don't need the testimony from John. I need two or three witnesses. Jesus is completely confident in himself to be able to judge mere human beings who are standing before him. Isn't that a funny picture? You have little human beings judging Jesus, and Jesus goes, you have no idea who I am. And if you knew, you would melt away. <laughs> Jesus does not need witnesses. He didn't need John. He doesn't. But he still used John in a powerful way. And so here's the thing. What does, what does God call us to do as Christians? To be his, his witness. He doesn't need you. He's completely independent, but he loves when you share your faith. He loves when you give him glory. He uses you. He gives you that purpose to life. And the reason why we have a hard time picking this up to say, I want to go be a witness in Soderton, the reason why we struggle is because we're afraid of what people think. Jesus says, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I don't receive glory from human beings. I know who I am. He's confident in his personal identity. Are you confident in who you are in Christ? Are you confident? Maybe you're not. And that's okay. That's great for another conversation. We can discuss those things. But if you truly trust and believe that Jesus has given you a new identity, that he's transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, if you believe that, then nothing can, can get in your way. Why do you think Paul in Romans chapter 8 talks about that? And there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. You're a new creation. So why, if we're a new creation, do we have a tendency to kind of live in the old way and be like, well, I'm really scared to talk about Jesus or talk about God? I'm really scared to be his witnesses. You as a church were controversial years ago when you separated from the UCC church. What does it look like for Lottie's to be controversial in 2023? 
Let it be for Jesus. Let it be for being a witness. Let it be, let's go out to the community. Let's get outside the church walls. Let's go to where people go. Let's go to the parks, right? Let's go to the restaurants. Let's go to the coffee shops. Let's go to the breweries. Let's go to the wine. Wherever people are, that's where we should go because that's where the heart of God is. And see, Jesus spent time with the tax collectors and sinners. Controversial. We need to be with the tax collectors and sinners of society. That's controversial. As a church, are we going to do that? Are we going to embrace this reality? Because here's the tendency. We have a tendency to say, well, I want to be controversial about everything because our ethics are just the best. And so we're just going to take Christian ethics and we're going to tell those non-Christians, those 165 million non-Christians, that they need to follow our ethics. And we're going to be controversial. We're going to cast judgment on them. Don't do that. Or you can be a Christian that says, I don't want to live any controversial anything. I just kind of want to sit here. I want to stay in my lane. I want to live my life. I'll read my Bible. I'm going to do everything just right here. The whole world can crumble around me. I just want to be, I just want to be me, and I don't want to rock the boat. Jesus doesn't call you to do that. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me is what Jesus says. That sounds pretty uncomfortable. What's God calling you to do? Think about it. It might look different for every one of us. But he's calling you to be his witness even though he doesn't need you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for this. Thank you for this time to be able to come together and worship. Thank you for the resilience of this church to be able to stand against dark forces in our world. They did it through your power the Holy Spirit. And I just ask that you just, you take this church in a direction that you want them to go. I pray that you will raise up a leader who only cares about you, that is not about glory from other people. I pray that you find, that you find and give them an amazing shepherd to lead them into these unique and difficult times that our culture is leading us through. So I just thank you for who you are, and I love you. Amen.